I was 23 when I became pastor of Fentress Baptist Church in Fentress, Mississippi. My first church as pastor. It was and still is a very small country church. Some of the finest folks I know are from there. Many of them now in heaven, a few that are left. And I love going back to see them. I was hired by a man named J.P. Coleman. If that name is familiar to you, J.P. Coleman was the governor of Mississippi from 1956 to 1960. And then he was appointed by LBJ to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. He was a federal judge in New Orleans. I called him Judge Coleman. He was a good friend and he was the chairman of the deacons. And my brother Don, who's the attorney in our family, was very impressed that I was friends with a federal judge. And he warned me, he said, David, that man can put you under a prison if he wants to for no good reason. And he just kind of sowed that seed in my little head. I remember very specifically my first Sunday as pastor. Judge Coleman pulled me aside and he said to me, and I quote, he said, son, you preach as long as you want to, but we're leaving at noon. church started at 11 so he gave me an hour and again he was a federal judge and I remembered what my brother said so today when you beat the Presbyterians and the Methodists to the restaurants in Sandy Springs say a prayer thanking God for J.P. Cole <laughs> I remember one of the first sermons I did there it might have been a trial sermon and it was 1983 and I preached, and I remember this section of scripture I described as my theology in a nutshell. Let's look at it together. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, before we read this. Lord, as we read and look at your word today, help us to make it our word. Help it to influence our souls and to change our lives. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us when we take it for granted. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite stories, 2 Kings 4, 1 to 7. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elijah and cried out, My husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elijah asked. Tell me, what do you have in your house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. Elijah said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors, and then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jar, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one jar after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Isn't that a great story? But she was in trouble. A widow, and this was a man's society at the time. Her husband was gone, and... Well, evidently, he didn't worry too much about finances, leaving her with just a flask of olive oil. A creditor that is there to take her sons away, to settle the debt, and the cupboard was mostly bare. 
So she sends for Elijah and he has a plan. If this were a modern day story, it's interesting to me. Think of all the containers you have in your house and that your neighbors would have. Think of all the empty containers in your house and I laugh as I think that because is there a law against throwing cool whip containers away? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you have one of those cabinets and usually they're hot? Do you have one of those cabinets and when you open it here, it's like the, the stampede comes out? We do. Some of you raise your hand. You've got those kinds of cabinets and you can't throw Tupperware away. There's laws against things like that. And so the boys go and gather containers from the neighbors. I can see them today coming back with so many. Elijah multiplies the olive oil and turns the poor lady's house into a boutique olive oil business. And I love the story, and I, I said as we began, it's really my theology in a nutshell. And, and I remember the points from the sermon 30-something years ago. Life can be hard. You will have problems. And God is the answer to the problems that you have. That's basically my theology in a nutshell. Life can be hard, you're going to have problems, and God is the answer to the problems that you have. So why would I have that as my theology? Well, growing up, I observed that. We lived, and I grew up in a household of faith across the road there. And I remember Mother having cancer. Uh, and I was 10 when she passed. Lived, left behind five kids, 10, 13, 16, 19, and 22. And we had problems. But God came through in many, many ways. And so faith doesn't make you immune from problems, does it? We've all got it. If you're here last week, it ought to remind you really of what we talked about last week. John 16, 33. Remember this? These things I have spoken to you that in me, and you may have peace in the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In a nutshell, that's exactly what happens in the story that we just looked at from 2 Kings chapter 4. Let me get to where I wanted to get today. I just finished reading a book on prayer. It was written long ago by an anonymous writer. Maybe you've read it. It's called The Kneeling Christian. The Kneeling Christian. It's a classic. And I read something in that little book. I downloaded it on my Kindle. I think if you got a Kindle or an iPad, you can get it for about 99 cents. And it's worth every penny. If you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. How was that? <laughs> I read something there that made my God much bigger. I became excited about something that I'd taken for granted that I'd looked at before and never paid attention to. And here's the quote. And thank Jeannie for typing all of this stuff for me week in and week out. This is from the book of Neely Christian, chapter 8, about prayer. And the author says, His resources are infinite, and His ways are past finding out. It was after bidding His disciples to ask that our Lord goes on to hint that not only at His problems, but at His resources. Look at the wild birds, Matthew 6, 26. Your Heavenly Father feeds them, how simple it sounds, yet have you ever reflected that not a single millionaire the wide world over is wealthy enough to feed all the birds of the air, even for one day? Your Heavenly Father feedeth them every day, and is none the poorer for it. Shall he not much more feed you, 
clothe you, take care of you. But what jumped out at me was the math. I'm a bit of a math nerd. Jeannie and I went on an anniversary when we had been married 10,000 days. We celebrated our millionth second together as husband and wife. And I just kind of have numbers floating in my head. But I started to do the math. You've seen Matthew 6, verse 26 before. Look at the birds of the air. They either sow or reap or gather in a barn. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than that? Something here astounded me when I did the math. Now, this, when these words were written, they didn't have Google. How would they know how many birds of the air there are? So I Googled how many birds of the air are there in the world today. And it is estimated, and I'm at the high end of the estimate, but it's estimated there are 400 billion birds on the planet. 400 billion. So I had to use that as one of my numbers. And then I Googled who the richest man in the world is. Unfortunately, your name did not pop up, but I'm still rooting for you. It was Bill Gates. And it said that Bill Gates was worth $87 billion. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? So I did the math. I divided $400 billion by $87 billion. If Bill Gates had to feed all the birds in this world for one day, he would only be able to spend 4.6 cents per bird. I rounded it up. It would cost him 4.5977115 cents per bird to feed all the birds in the world for one day. Now bear with me. I'm sure the cost of labor and transportation and taxes and insurance would make the cost of feeding birds way more than a nickel, aren't you? Way more. Bill Gates couldn't do it. Not even close. Not even for one day. And this is what hit me. God does it every day. He did today. He did yesterday. He will tomorrow. For thousands of years. God has fed the birds of the air. And is none the poorer that blew my mind. It gave me a little hint at unlimited resources that I had not really paid attention to. And I like the numbers. I like the truth of Matthew 6. Let's look at it in context, Matthew 6. You know it from the Sermon of the Mount. But in this particular section, Jesus is talking to Everyone there gathered into the sound of his voice, telling him not to worry. Beginning in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather in the barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more, much more clothe you, you little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? For if the Gentiles will strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, I guess worry is a part of life. It's a pastime for many people. But it's a dangerous thing to do. It takes a severe toll on us physically, spiritually, emotionally. But for the Christian, it's just a sin. We're just told not to do it. Worrying is equivalent to saying, God, I know you mean well by what you say, but I'm just not sure you can pull it off. Well, yes, he can. His resources are unlimited. Look at these definitions of worry. <coughs> worry is a thin stream of fear that trickles through the mind. If encouraged, it'll cut a channel so wide that all other thoughts will be drowned in it. The grand canyon in your brain if you worry too much. Another one, worry is faith in the negative, trust in the unpleasant, assurance of disaster, and belief in defeat. Thirdly, worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's trouble. I like But my favorite definition of worry is a video we're about to watch. If you're a worrier, you ever run to the worst case scenario when you hear something? These people sure did. How was work? Nothing unusual. Email was down again. And uh, they'll call me into his office again. What's wrong? Nothing really. He just thinks he can come down and put in with these blue collar guys. You know, these white collar. Or you've done something wrong again. And you're going to be trouble. And you'll be demoted. Then you'll stop shaking. There goes my vacation. Maybe you'll get fired. And then you'll do that lazy thing and I'll have to go back to work. And there goes the house. We have plans for this house.
can you relate to that? Why do we do that? We jump to worst possible scenarios when God says, I take care of the birds, I'll take care of you. For the Christian, it's just foolish. God tells us, you know, when we're worried about food or clothing or shelter, that's my area. He doesn't want us preoccupied with things of the earth. He wants us to set our minds on things above. He wants us to lay up treasure in heaven to seek first the kingdom of God. In order to free us to do that, he says, don't worry about the other stuff, I'll take care of it. It's a basic of spiritual life, a basic principle. We're not earthbound people. If you were living in Palestine when Jesus said this, this was really radical. Because you might have been a little more concerned than we are with the Publix or a Kroger or a Trader Joe's everywhere, water in the house that didn't turn on multiple faucets. But when the snows didn't come in Palestine in the mountains, then the streams didn't run, and in the summer the streams would dry up, there'd be no water. And if pestilence came, there'd be no crops. There wasn't any food. You didn't have income. You couldn't buy clothing. So it was a lot different then than it is now. But the words were just as true then as they are today. God will always take care of us. As Jesus had given the Sermon on the Mount, he was standing on the hillside looking out and he probably seen birds fly over when he made the comment. I did the math, and I got excited. And I hope you are too. What are you worried about? Please remember, your Heavenly Father has unlimited resources. I just wanted to remind you. Let's pray.